I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. This is part nine in the Mark series, going verse by verse through the entire Gospel of Mark, covering theology, apologetics, historical insights, simple verse by verse teaching, and with an emphasis on application to our lives, so that we have the whole gamut, hopefully, of the kind of way that you can approach the Bible. At least that's my heart and my hope behind it. This week, for a preview, and you'll notice this as I teach, especially since the content goes online, and the titles of videos don't let me really summarize what the study's about. So the first moments in the in the message, I like to tell you what I'm going to tell you. So we're going to give you two different passages, um, really, in the Gospel of Mark. And one of them involves a puzzling parable about wineskins and new wine and old wine and a piece of cloth and, and how it would shrink and tear from the old. And so this old and new parable or illustration of Jesus that I think is often abused. And so I want to talk about that because the proper use, not abuse, of the parables of Jesus is kind of important so that we're not misusing the words of Christ. Um, but also, in a real sense, this first passage we're going to cover, it deals with your Christian worldview. It's like a test tonight to see how biblical is your worldview when it comes to this issue that we're going to be in right now. Because this is one of the areas where Christianity says to the world, yeah, you're pretty much all wrong on this topic. And in coming to Christ, this is one of the renewal of your mind type things where it changes your mind about who we are and about how good people actually are. This is a really big deal. So um, first I'll just read through um, this, t- this, this first passage. It's Mark chapter 2 verse 13. We'll read through verse 17 and then we're going to cover it in more detail after we get it just kind of loaded in our minds. So this is the first of our two passages tonight. Uh, Mark two thirteen, and he went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to him, to Jesus, and he was teaching them. He passed by, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he, as, that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is, this is the passage that's going to challenge that Christian worldview. If you understand what Jesus is saying and doing with these Pharisees, why he's eating with them, why is it a problem, what is he teaching us through it, you'll see as we go through how this is about the Christian worldview. So the big picture is this. Jesus is calling sinners, right? I'm going to give you a big picture so I don't lose it in our verse-by-verse treatment of the passage. Jesus is not calling people that are qualified. He's calling unqualified people who are not just considered outcasts of society. They're considered wicked people. That's the key. They're considered wicked, sinful people, and he's calling them to be his followers. That's a huge deal. And this like turns the tables on the way that they were doing religion at the time and turns the tables on how we view religion. But the main point is Jesus is like saying to you, to me, no matter how wicked you are, no matter how sinful you are, he's saying, will you come? Yeah, I'm actually inviting you to come and follow me. That's, I think, the application, just to get right to it at the beginning. Yes, okay, oh, I'm too sinful, I couldn't follow Jesus. I'll be like, oh, well, you have one of the first qualifications for following Jesus. 
being a sinner because he comes for the sinners, not the righteous. If you thought you were a great person and that's why you can follow Jesus, guess what? You can't. You can't follow him thinking that you're a righteous person. He's not going to let you. No, he wants sinners. And this will become more real to you as we discuss what it meant to be a tax collector or the significance of Jesus eating with them and why the scribes and Pharisees don't like it. So let's kind of like dig in um, and hopefully we'll take take two passages really today that are frequently misused, misapplied in my opinion, and we'll try to look at them and understand them in context. So here we are, Mark 2.13. Let's look at it again more carefully. And he went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. This is like the thing that triggers everything else that happens in the passage. He calls this guy Levi. Levi is a tax collector. Who is this Levi person? He's Levi, the son of Alphaeus. It seems like this is Matthew. This Levi and Matthew are the same person. We read about this exact same story in Mark, in Luke, and in the Gospel of Matthew. In Mark... He's called Levi, the son of Alphaeus. In Luke, he's called a tax collector named Levi. In Matthew, he's called a man called Matthew. It seems as though Matthew and Levi are the same person. Um, As you read the passages in the different gospels, you'll see they're all, it's clearly parallel. They're not similar stories. It's the same story. So if we take the whole council here of the gospels, we're looking at the same person with more than one name. This is actually not that uncommon for, it's fairly common for them to have more than one name. You can even think of people who have more than one name off the top of your head, probably in the New Testament, Jewish guys who were just called by more than one name. That's not uncommon at all. But there's a little bit of controversy about this. So I'll just share it with you just because you might be curious. Some say that this is actually not Matthew, that this is actually James, the son of Alphaeus. Why James, the son of Alphaeus? Well, because he's called Matthew, the son of, or Levi, the son of Alphaeus in Mark. Well, there is, in fact, a couple of texts. Some of our, our manuscripts are like ancient manuscripts that actually say James, the son of Alphaeus, instead of Levi, the son of Alphaeus. So they go, ha, ah, it was James. But this is where textual criticism comes in and helps us out. They've evaluated these texts. They've compared them amongst each other. And they say that the authentic reading is very, very likely Levi, the son of Alphaeus. We can set that aside. Um, when we ha- this is the beauty of having so many manuscripts fr- of, of the original New Testament. We have tons of copies, and so we compare them one to another. They don't all say identical things. But that doesn't mean we're like, we throw our hands up in the air, like we have no idea what the original reading was. For instance, there's, there's a, um, a passage where Paul is writing, and he says, we were, um, we were gentle among you. Well, there's, a, there's an alternate reading in one manuscript that says, we were horses among you. Think about that. Now, we were horses among you. Now, in the Greek, there's like only one letter difference between the word gentle and the word horse. So there's just a letter difference. It was just a misspelling. And it turns out to be a very, very different meaning of the passage. Yet nobody thinks the original reading was, we were horses among you. And that's where you, you examine this, the manuscripts and you go, okay, obviously this is a scribal slip of the pen. Um, some, some scribes said, oh, it's the son of Alphaeus, and they know James is also the son of Alphaeus, so they wrote James instead of Levi. That was what probably happened. Um, chances are, Matthew and James had dads with the same names, but weren't brothers, because we, I, we're, we've, we're given brothers. James and John, Peter and Andrew, they're brothers, and we know that, the text tells us, but it never says that Matthew and James were brothers. So they both probably just had dads named Alphaeus. Um, that seems to be the case. 
least that's my opinion about it. Double names are actually very common. There's one uh, argument against this identification of Matthew and Levi, and that is that Matthew's a common name, Levi's a common name. Usually if there was two names, one was common, one was uncommon. So my name's Mike, for instance, that's a very common name, or at least it once was. It's, it's becoming less common now. People are often more not named like cabbage and Brussels sprout and things like that. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we're, there's different names, you know, that go through as time changes. But, um, but what would happen is if, if I was in a, a class with too many mics, you'd start giving me a different name because I have a common name. And you give me a name that was less common, you know. So they call me awesome guy or something like that. So <laughs> nobody ever called me that. Um, <clears throat> but, but that's the idea. But Matthew and Levi are fairly common names. So they go, that's not common to have two common names and have both of them being applied to you. And to me, I just say, like, we live in the real world where weird things happen all the time. <laughs> And if you could think of your own family history, like think of my grandpa, whose name is William, who's called Butch. And you might think, well, that seems very uncommon. And be like, well, it is uncommon, but it yet is the way it is. And anyway, I think life is just like that. Um, it seems clear to me from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you take these as all being, offering us different elements of the story that Matthew is the same as Levi. And that's where most, uh, throughout history, most people have thought that. So, Moving forward, Jesus says to Levi, Matthew, he says, follow me. Follow me. Now, this might seem odd to you because you read the passage and you're like, so this guy comes up to you. He just says, hey, follow me. You leave your job at the tax booth and you go follow him. Like, sometimes we read it and we forget that there's context and there's a lot more details than we're even getting in the story. He probably already knew Jesus. He probably had already heard Jesus teaching. He certainly knew of Jesus. Uh, at this point, Jesus had taught around Galilee, all the, all the way around Galilee. He's back in Capernaum again. He's well known. They're gathering to hear his teaching. And here he comes up to this guy at the tax booth. And what I think would, is, is, not, is surprising is not the idea that he would get up and follow Jesus. What's surprising is that Jesus would ask this lowlife to follow him. He's a tax collector. And you've, okay, I know you don't like the IRS. Okay, I get that. And those of you who you don't work as much, it'll grow on you. You'll, you'll understand. Uh, as time goes by, you'll get it. Um, but historical context gives us some real eye-opener information about Jesus asking this tax collector to follow him, which means being one of his disciples. Follow me, like come and be one of my disciples. This means I'm, I'm embracing you as someone who I will teach and equip and use. That's huge. Here's the historical insight, right? There was not one government in first century Israel. There were two. There was the Jewish government and there was the Roman government. The Jewish government was the original government, right? The Roman government was the oppressors, was the ones in control. And they were seen as that by a lot of Jews. The Jewish government itself was more like a puppet government. In fact, you think of the time of Herod the Great when Jesus was first born. It was the time of Herod the Great. Well, that was like the last real king of the Jews. After his time, they split his kingdom up because the Romans didn't trust them to have that much power. So you have these different Herods and different, Herod became a title, multiple people had it. But you have these different guys controlling different regions and they split up Jewish power. And then they put people into those positions that the Romans felt they could trust, which means they're less loyal to the Jewish people. So there's this a lot of tension going on. By the time of, of Jesus, there's, there's even groups of people called zealots who are those who are actively fighting against Rome. One of the things Jesus gets in trouble for 
is that he's seen as what? A future, a king of the Jews? You're going to be raising up a rebellion against Rome. That's what that means to them. And so there's serious major tension. By 70 AD, it finally fully explodes. They destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and they massacre tons and tons of Jewish people. Josephus says that they were running out of wood for crosses to crucify all the people that the Romans were crucifying during this time. And, um, and so it got pretty intense. Well, this tension is really high in the days of Jesus. And the tax collector sits in the middle of all this, collecting taxes for Rome from Jewish people. The tax collectors themselves, now people don't like taxes already, okay? They already don't like taxes, even if none of this is going on. But they like it even less when they feel it's coming from an oppressive government, especially a government that's not even your government. A government you wish you could throw off and you're paying them these taxes. And they viewed these tax collectors as traitors. That's why they would use phrases like tax collectors and sinners. Like they just go together. It just, they just, like peanut butter and jelly. Like these are just things that belong together, tax collectors and sinners. And so these tax collectors would actually bid, they would pay money to get the rights to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. Then they would recover this massive investment of money they used to purchase the position of tax collector. They would recover the money by charging you more than the taxes that Rome was charging. And this was okay. They were allowed to do this. So here you are. You're paying me taxes you don't want to pay, and I'm charging you on top of that extra so I can line my own pockets. So they were just considered as traitors in every sense of the word to the people of Israel. And Jesus says to one of these guys, get up and follow me. Be one of my disciples. I mean, he walks past Pharisees and scribes and highly religious people. And he asks this lowlife, this traitor of his own people who overcharges them to line his own pockets and get rich off the backs of his own people, taking advantage of an oppressive government and all this stuff. And he says, come and follow me. So I hope you can see like why this is like, what, I mean, if you were one of Jesus' disciples, at some point you'd be like, I don't know how to explain the things that he is doing. But he'll explain as we go on and we'll understand why this was deliberate and why it was important. In verse 15, we read on, it says, And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners, there's those, that coupled phrase, tax collectors and sinners, were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? There's this phrase coupled again and again to show you how like, repulsed they were. These are wicked people. What are you doing? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, here is a way in which I've heard this used that I think is inappropriate. And you've heard it too, probably. The idea is this. Hey, man, Jesus would hang out with prostitutes and sinners. And as I heard a pastor recently you know, use this passage, and he says, and I'll quote him. He goes, Jesus partied with them. Jesus partied with tax collectors and sinners. And I just remember, like, you know, you, when you have these passages in your head, like you load the passage when you hear phrases like that, and you're like, where's the partying part exactly? Because now I picture music, and now I picture excess of drinking and excess of things like that. And I picture just a sense of carnality and that Jesus is participating in these things. And I, I'm like, here's the application I hear sometimes from this passage where Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners is that we should just go be friends with the unsaved. We should spend non-spiritual time with the unsaved. Okay, I, I agree with both of those. 
to an extent, but I do agree with them. But then they go one step further. Don't share. Don't preach. Maybe tell them that, about you believing in God, but don't call them to follow Jesus or change their lives. And that's where I draw the line. And I go, okay, that's not biblical. That's the misuse of this passage. See, it's, it, the passage is definitely telling us there's an outreach to all people, including those that we would consider wicked people. That is absolutely true. What's not true is that we should party with sinners. Like that is definitely an abuse of the passage, I think. I think clearly too. And it seems weird to me to see some very well-known leaders say things like that. Why do I say that? Because the gospel's confrontive by nature. Like I'm calling people to follow Jesus, not just to like me as I follow Jesus. Like I don't want you to like me. I want you to be like me in the sense that you're now following Jesus too. And so there's an outreach sense. The gospel's confrontive by nature. And Jesus, he does this too because they're, he's there eating them. Eating them, that would be wrong. <laughs> That's definitely a misapplication of the passage. Um, he's there eating with them, but he's also teaching them. He's also proclaiming his message. He never leaves his message aside in order to go and meet with people. He brings the message to the people. The controversy is that he's bringing it to those people. And that's, that's where the application comes in. We bring it to all people, right? Everyone, no matter how wicked, no matter how far fallen they are. And we'll come out to how wicked everyone really is in a minute. But Jesus taught them and called them to change. Remember his message early in Mark chapter 1? It was repent and believe. But the people who misuse this passage will often say, ditch the repent and believe message and just go do life with people. And they'll be like, as a Christian, I can't do life with, it, with you without also telling you to follow Jesus. Like that's part of the doing life thing. So I'm not going to become secular so that I can hang out with sinners and tax collectors or whatever. I, I, no, I'm, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to be calling them to follow Jesus. There's another twisted view on this passage that I, 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 I like unraveling twisted views on scripture. And there's another twisted view on this. And it's that the scribes and the Pharisees are the bad guys and the sinners and tax collectors are the innocent masses who just want the Lord. And they're being like, their, their, their religious life is being messed up by these religious jerks, Pharisees and scribes. And so this switches roles. So in their culture, they think sinners and tax collectors, they're the wicked ones. Scribes and Pharisees, they're the righteous ones. And the misuse of this passage is to switch roles. Okay, the Pharisees and scribes, they're the turd faces. These are the evil people. But these sinners and tax collectors are just the innocent masses who just need to just, to, just have a meal with them, just love them. That's it. But this is not the actual story with Jesus. Because Jesus, what he's going to do is something very different. And this, this is where it tests your Christian worldview. He's going to say, you think the sinners and tax collectors are down here and you're up here. Here's the truth. Here's you. Here's them. You're all down there. That's what tests your worldview. Are you, are you trying to decide who's up here, who's down there? Nope, you're all down there. That's the, I think, the biblical understanding. Some people, when they misapply this, they translate this into the application in our modern day as despising church leaders and thinking that the worldly people, people who reject church, reject fellowship, and reject Christ, that they're just innocent, misunderstood, or they're just being turned off by religious jerks. So... Here's what happens. It results in us thinking that our job is to make church appealing. But then if you take it to the next step and realize that, yeah, but those church people are the bad guys. Then our next job is to ditch church and just make Christianity appealing without church, right? Because now it's to get rid of the religious stuff. But then you realize that too is going to be a problem. So you go, how about we ditch church? We ditch Christianity and we just do Jesus. And we have like a, 
weird version of Christianity. It's just a, a, like it's a stripped down Bible list, just Jesus kind of Christianity. And I'm thinking maybe that will be appealing to the sinners and tax collectors. And I have to protect them from all those other religious Christians, the Pharisees. It's interesting how quickly everyone's willing to call someone else a Pharisee, not wondering what actually made a Pharisee a Pharisee. Um, anyway, I think this is all a mistake. This is where our worldview is tested, and here's, I think, the biblical understanding of the Christian worldview when it comes to this issue. Romans 1 tells us, right, that the Gentiles, the, the, the non-Jews, they're wicked people. It's not friendly. It, well, it is friendly. It's friendly in the sense of, like, when you tell your buddy that he's got, like, this nasty thing in his mouth and he's hanging off his tooth, and you're like, I'm being a true friend. <laughs> i tell you about your nasty sin issue. But, um... Romans 1 tells us this, right? That mankind has sinned against God and we've done, we've done wickedly. And God is, is, gives us over to the debased mind to perform these wicked acts because we're rejecting the knowledge of God. In chapter 2 of Romans, it looks at the Jewish person and says, Hey, guess what? You too. You too, Maju. You're a sinner too. You are also a sinner. And your revelation of the law, it only makes it even more obvious. Sorry, that was, that was a dumb joke. It only makes it more obvious that you are in fact wicked. And so Romans 1 tells us, oh, the Gentile. And then Romans 2, the, the Jews also wicked. And then Romans 3, in case you missed the point, it goes, let's give you the point. There is no right, none righteous, no, not one. All have turned away. All have become wicked. We all like sheep have gone astray. That that's all of us. That's the idea. The problem is that we think we're good and we're trying to figure out which people in our society are the sinners and tax collectors and which are the Pharisees. And Jesus is like, it doesn't matter. You're all wicked. That's the Christian worldview. If you couple this view, this I'm a good person, and that some, some other people are not as good as me, and then you couple this with the idea that God's judgment is based on goodness, and you get the false gospel of works salvation, and that's what Jesus, I think, is trying to dispel while he's dealing with these things. And he deals with, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners, he says. In Jesus' time, it was the scribes and Pharisees who thought they were good enough, and Jesus wants to break them of that habit. He shows them his love for the wicked because he's showing them his love for them. Jesus isn't rejecting the scribes and Pharisees. They rejected him because they think they're good people. And so we have never been slaves. Oh, I tell you, anyone who commits sin is a slave of sin, but I'll set you free. We're not blind. If you would be blind, (laughs) I can make you see. The person who thinks they're a good person is a Pharisee. That's a Pharisee. I think I'm a good person. The person who knows they're lost, they're ready to be saved. The Pharisee is not the person who thinks that God has these like really high, holy standards for us to live our lives. That's not Pharisaical. That's just called holiness. And I fall short of it and you fall short of it, but it doesn't change the standard. Pharisaicalness in this sense is setting aside um, God's righteousness and seeking to establish your own righteousness, which is what Romans 10 talks about. This is the flaw or the failure of man when we try to say I'm a good person. But take like an example of a great guy in the Old Testament, Isaiah. Isaiah was like a great guy as far as, as far as humans go, right? Isaiah. But when he saw God in Isaiah 6, verse 5, look at his reaction. He sees God and here's what he says. <clears throat> Woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah said, woe is me, because being confronted with God, he suddenly became like aware of how much he falls short. This is like where that kid, 
you know, who's really good at high school basketball, he like goes to college basketball and he realizes that he's not as good as he thought. There's there's something about when you when you raise the the quality of the people that you're around, you realize the things you thought you were good at, you might not have been as good at the thing that you thought you were just comparing yourself to people who weren't very good. And Isaiah sees God and he sees him in his glory and his holiness. And he's like, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I, I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. He's suddenly aware of the sinful state that he's got. And God, of course, brings him the coal, which I think represents the sacrifice of Christ because that was the only sacrifice offered in heaven in scripture. And the blood would drip down onto those coals. And I think it's a beautiful picture of the covering of Jesus Christ for his sin. Um, <clears throat> but yes, Isaiah shows what happens when you see your sinful state? And this is part of spiritual awakening in your life. It's not, I'm so glorious. It's rather, oh, I'm so wicked. Like This is part of what happens when you become spiritually aware. You're aware of your sin. And then you turn to incredible gratitude because you're aware that Jesus calls sinners and tax collectors. And you're like, that's me. That's me. The Pharisees' problem was in thinking that they were better than other people. So when we flip this, the script and we go, ah, the Pharisees are the sinners. And the sinners are the, are, the, are the good people. Oh, we flipped the script. But no, that, that's not the message. The message is we're all down there. We're all of us down there. <clears throat> so Jesus is not flipping this thing upside down to say that the Pharisees are bad and, and then the, uh, the unchurched are really good, innocent, sincere people who all just really want God. And it's just these bad churches that keep getting in the way. People are so fast to just throw every church under the bus. Like churches they've never even heard of, never been to, pastors they've never heard preach, but they're willing to be like, they're all messed up be like, well, maybe you should go meet some of them <laughs> and find out because that may not be the case. No, as, as long as we'll admit our sinful state and our wickedness, we're ready for God's grace. And that's, I think, one of the major messages and it tests our Christian worldview. So Jesus, he simultaneously has a very negative view of our moral condition and he offers us forgiveness. And these things must go together. The Christian who has a Christian worldview knows that mankind is actually really wicked. And the one who's honestly reflective about our own desires and our own sins in, in our hearts and minds as well as in our lives, we recognize, yeah, okay, me too. Me too, Lord. And then I recognize his forgiveness and his grace. <clears throat> in verse 17, Jesus, he drives home the whole point he's making. It says, in hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus... Um, he still calls these sinners and tax collectors, what does he call them? Sinners. Like, he, he still calls them sinners. Like, this is not a compliment in any language. Like, Greek, English, like, in no language is this a compliment. Like, hey, hey, sinner, I've come to call you. Like, Jesus is being very honest about the condition of mankind, but he's still calling us to him. And he requires that we be very honest about our own condition. This is, I think, communicated in another one of the parables of Jesus. So Luke chapter 18, if you would flip there. Let's look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to drive home why Jesus was uh, saying that he's not come to call the righteous but sinners. <coughs> Luke 18, verse 9. I love the way this parable is introduced. It says, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt, right? What, what makes the Pharisee the Pharisee? I think I'm a good person. That's the nature of it right there. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now we know, truly despised, considered a rebel against 
their own people and, and uh, traitors. <clears throat> the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now already I'll just say this is where he's wrong already. He is like other people. He just doesn't realize it. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So we have two different approaches, two people coming to God. God, I thank you. I'm going to give you credit for how good I am, but I just thank you that I'm, I'm doing good. I'm good. I'm a pretty righteous person. And another one who won't even look to God, but he just begs for mercy. And he's hitting his chest, meaning he thinks I deserve punishment. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in a word, the Christian worldview is saying, everyone is supposed to be like that guy that got on his face and hit his chest and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm a sinner and I need your mercy. And for anyone who comes to God and is like, I think I'm a good person. I think I'm going to make it just fine. I'm going to get to heaven. I think if, you know, if God's doing like a good person test, I'm a good person. I mean, A, I'm not Hitler. B, I like me. I donate to causes. I volunteer sometimes. I'm, you know, I, I don't do this. I don't do that. I do these things. So I'm a good person. And the answer is, unfortunately to that is no, that's a delusion. But this is where the beauty of the gospel comes in. Because once we realize our low, low state, and, and I know in a sense I'm like preaching to the choir because like how many of you guys already know this, but we need to hear it again and we need to remind ourselves because so much of the interaction we see in the world and the way they interact with Christianity with anger is because they're rebelling against the idea that they're sinful. And that's one reason why they're offended by the gospel. Just like the Pharisees were about, were about to be offended by Jesus. But Romans, one of my favorite passages, Romans 5 Verses 6 through 8, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. See, the apostles, they continue this tradition of just calling people what they were. (laughs) Ungodly. But I just, I've been looking for God forever and the churches wouldn't let me find him. Or something like that. Like, that's not a realistic view of man. He died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I'm greatly comforted by this because I accept my sinful condition. I'm not a good person. I'm, I'm in desperate need. I am the tax collector. I am the sinner who's just grateful that he would reach down and be like, yeah, I'll call you. You're unqualified, I'll qualify you. You're not ready, I'll make you ready. You're unclean, I'll clean you up. And he does it all. To underscore this, notice who Jesus did not come to call in Mark 2.17. I did not come to call the righteous. Like, that's who I don't want. I don't want the righteous. Now, some would say, um, okay, so there's two paths to heaven, right? There's like the path to heaven of be a good person, and you're on your own, you don't even need Jesus, you're doing fine. But is that really what Jesus was trying to communicate? Uh, No, actually, he's saying I didn't come to call the righteous, but he also would communicate that nobody's righteous. So the idea is if you think you're righteous, you're not ready for Jesus. As long as you're deluded about your goodness, you're not ready for Christ. 
So here's, I think, maybe a balanced view of this. This view, this verse that I often hear misused to like be excuses for Christians to go clubbing and things like this. Um, and uh, um, well, raise your hand. Have you heard people use this passage for that stuff? I have. I've heard it several times, and I'm, it just makes me sad because, yeah, um, no. <clears throat> the balance would be this. Uh, there's an attitude of invitation and outreach in the church. We're missional in nature and we say, anyone, everyone, come. Right? The spirit and the bride say, come. Oh, but I'm wicked. Oh, then you're ready. Right? Because you're all wicked. It's just those of you who admit it are ready for grace. And those who don't admit it, well, you're not ready for Jesus. But there's a call. So it's not just hanging out with the world. Not that that's ever, never going to happen or never should happen. Just take someone out to lunch and spend time with them. I'm not saying you never do that. But you don't just bench the message of Jesus permanently to build relationships. And a year later and three years later and five years later, you're like, have they absorbed my Christianity yet? Like, you know, like I, I still haven't talked to them about the Lord. I'm too nervous about it. And there's something to be said about strategically and thoughtfully and tactfully sharing Christ and being you know, it's okay to not have every conversation be about Jesus when you're talking to unsafe people. But you can't have no conversations about Jesus and call that outreach and call that a missional relationship. Um, so notice Jesus' instructions to the disciples. This, I think, helps. We'll get there in Mark six eleven, but I'll just read it to you. When he sends the disciples out ahead of him, he says, Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. So there's a, a standard in, in the Christian faith where it's like, I will still love you, I will reach out to you, but if you won't listen to me, if I have no avenue of speaking to you, then I will move on and keep witnessing to other people. I won't forever have a stagnant outreach relationship with no outreach. And some of us, we get locked into one relationship and we're never sharing Christ with them because we're afraid of what it'll do. And I think, I say, just, just rip the band-aid off, share Jesus and see what happens. You know, and if nothing else, then you can just keep moving forward, sharing Christ with other people. But it can actually make you stagnant in your outreach because you, you're just afraid to tell them. And um, you just have to know rejection is not on you. Your, your proclamation is your job. Acceptance is the job of everyone else who hears the, the message. <clears throat> so the proper use of this passage is everyone can come regardless of their wicked past. And if you think you don't have a wicked past, you're a Pharisee. <laughs> That's the message. That's the message. Um, Okay, let's keep reading. In verse 18, (coughs) it says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, but yours do not fast? Disciples of the Pharisees, excuse me. Um, Verse 18 shows us something kind of interesting. I don't know if you noticed this. John's disciples and the Pharisees, two very different groups, right? They were fasting at the same time. So this seems to be like an organized fast. Now, the only commanded fast in the Old Testament was on the, around the Day of Atonement. And I think that Jesus' disciples would have fasted during the Day of Atonement. This doesn't seem to be around the Day of Atonement. But they seem to have a scheduled fast. Now, we know from other documents, the New Testament, as well as extra-biblical literature from the first century, that the Pharisees would fast twice a week. And in fact, those days were Mondays and Thursdays. And they would fast sunup till sundown, Mondays and Thursdays. So not like even a 24-hour period, but just, you know, during the daylight hours. So I guess in the wintertime, that wasn't as hard as in the summertime. I would have been bummed out in the summertime. Every time you fast, it's like a 50-hour fast every day. That's an exaggeration. But um, why would this this be going on, though? Okay, so 
John's disciples seem to be still copying some of the traditions of the Pharisees they've added to the word of God. They're fasting. The Pharisees are doing it. They are the spiritual leaders of the people. And so they're both doing it. They look at Jesus' disciples and they just, this just seems common with Jesus' disciples. They follow the Old Testament law, but they just completely ignore the traditions that people have added. This is like, you, you could say this is like a, 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 a church that's rising up that's just completely different than local churches in the area. And so, you know, they put the, the drums on stage back in the day. Some churches still think the drums are evil, um, which just read Psalm 150, man, please. And then stop. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but some people would think this and, then, and that goes against the traditions. But those are just traditions. These things don't matter. They don't really matter at all. But this bothers them for some reason. They're like, look, you know, here, here we are fasting. You guys aren't fasting. Something must be wrong with you. But Jesus takes this opportunity, this small issue on fasting, on unscheduled or, you know, where God didn't tell him to fast. And he uses it to communicate some really deep truths. So this is like the launch pad for getting into some bigger issues. And his answer is more interesting, I think, than a lot of people realize. Verse 19, it says, And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. They cannot fast. Uh, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, wedding celebrations back in the day, back in Jesus' time, they would usually be a seven-day, a week-long celebration. And they would not fast. In fact, they could not, literally could not fast. They even had rabbinical rules about how you're not allowed to fast, even the normal Monday-Thursday fasting. You don't do it during a wedding feast because it's a celebration, and fasting is not about celebrating. And so they were told not to do it. John the Baptist, he used this terminology to refer to the bridegroom being Jesus as well. So this is kind of interesting. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. Keep this in mind. John did it as well. John 3.29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. So John and Jesus both talk about Jesus being the bridegroom or, you know, the future husband. Well, who's the bride? Well, looking back in hindsight, we go, well, that's the church. But to them, they would be thinking of the bride as being Israel. That's what they'd be thinking about at the time. And what's interesting about this is Jesus, there are two things that are interesting. There's like, actually, there's like seven. We'll start with a couple. First off, Jesus, um, he, he doesn't say the wedding is happening. He just says the bridegroom is with them. And we do see in eschatology that the wedding is a future thing. But the bridegroom was, in fact, here during that time. So that's just interesting how that fits with the eschatology of things. But also, in the scripture, there's a, there's a bridegroom for Israel, and it's not even listed as the Messiah. Does anybody know who the bridegroom is for Israel? Who's the, or the husband for Israel in the Old Testament? It's God. Yeah, God is the husband of Israel. Never, never do we get a reference to the Messiah. So this is like... Now, we know the Messiah is God. Theologically, we know this. But, but this like spills over into the identity of Christ and the deity of Christ when he says, I'm the bridegroom and I'm here. And so he makes the matter much worse. They were upset because he wasn't fasting. And then he calls himself the bridegroom, which in their understanding would be like, like claiming the place of God. And he's not just saying, oh, I'm showing up as a good teacher, a good rabbi bringing, new, bringing good teachings. Rather, he's like, no, I'm him. I'm the one. I've arrived. And so they would get frustrated, but when he couches it in parable, it makes it a little harder for them to crucify him just yet. When Jesus gets more clear later on in the Gospel of Mark, they crucify him for it. 
But here he puts the teaching and couches it in parable. But in several passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Jeremiah, um, I think it's in Zechariah 2 uh, as well, not Zechariah 2, but just Zechariah the book, where there's this idea of God being the bridegroom. Then there's another interesting element in this little parable about the bridegroom, this illustration, and that is that Jesus says they will fast in the future when the bridegroom is taken away. Now, you might be thinking of a honeymoon here, right? Because after the wedding, they're, they're taken away, but that's not the right verbiage for it. Plus, they weren't taken away. You would go, you would feast with them, and then you would all leave while they enjoyed their home together. They didn't go on a honeymoon, so to speak. What is he saying? And it's in the passive voice. The bridegroom is going to be taken away. This is seen as the first prediction of Jesus of his crucifixion. I'm the bridegroom. I'm with him. This isn't a time of fasting, but there's a time where I will passive voice, meaning it's going to happen to me. I'll be taken away. Jesus is going to be taken away, forcefully removed from their presence. And then they will fast. So fasting's not wrong. The timing is wrong, right? I'm the bridegroom. I'm with them. Here's a sample of the future coming kingdom right now. Rejoice. Enjoy it. But there's a time coming where they will, they will fast. <clears throat> so that's interesting too. There's so many little elements very thoughtfully put together in, the, in what Jesus says to them. Um, I'm going to give you a quick few thoughts on fasting before we move forward into the, to the two illustrations Jesus gives about the cloth and the wineskins and stuff like that. Um, because I get asked about this and I, I just thought it would be good to throw it in here since the topic of fasting has come up. There are a variety of different kinds of fasts in the Bible. There's fasts where they fast for just like part of a day, like the Pharisees and scribes. They're fasting sun up till sundown. There's fasts where it's like Daniel. He did his fast. His fast was from fancy food, right? He, he didn't eat the fancy food. He didn't eat the, the stuff because it was not kosher. And so he just reserved himself to like bread and vegetables and things like that. Um, now that, however, is not meant to be, I don't think, a secret dieting plan. Fasting in the Bible, I don't ever see as a secret dieting plan to get healthy and get strong. I'm not saying you can't fast for health reasons, but that's not the biblical focus in fasting. That's not the point. So if you're like, I'm fasting and you're really doing it to get slim, I think you're missing the point of the spiritual side of fasting entirely. Um, so you may do it for health reasons, but that's irrelevant to the biblical or spiritual reasons to do fasting. Fasting may not be commanded, but it is proper for us to do as Christians. It's often done because somebody is grieved over sin, is going through a hard time in life, and they wanted to seek the Lord. And one of the things you're doing when you're fasting is you're denying your flesh. I'm hungry. I want to eat. I want to eat even more when I decide not to right? As soon as you're like, I'm fasting, man, in and out sounds really good now. You know, this is just the nature of it. And it's self-denial. This is, this is what you're doing when you're fasting. You're denying self. And that's a beautiful practice to have because you have to do it every day in a hundred different ways. If you're following Jesus, you're denying your impulses, you're denying your desires. So fasting is like a way of practicing the spiritual discipline of not doing what you want. You're strengthening your ability to say no to yourself. That's a good quality in fasting. But can I say this? As a pastor, I recommend that you don't fast as a way of twisting God's arm. Because this is what I've often seen is a couple reasons people fast. One, I want to know who I'm going to marry. So I'm going to fast until God shows me. Two, <laughs> two, I'm struggling with sin and I'm going to fast and then I will have power over this sin. The idea in the mind is that by the time this fasting is over, these problems will be fixed. And that might be a bad mindset to approach fasting. 
perhaps the problems will be better, but that you cannot guarantee they'll be fixed. And I remember someone saying, I'm going to fast. I have a question for God about my life and my future. And I'm going to fast until he answers. And I was like, I don't think this is wise because I'm basically saying, God, answer my question or I will kill myself. Does this seem like a good idea? Like if you did this to your parents, you know, tell me what I want to know right now and I won't eat until you do. Do you see what I mean? This is not a healthy interaction with God. So rather view fasting as a, giving you a spiritual focus, a denial of self, but not as a way of forcing God, twisting his arm to do something that you want him to do. You still have to have an attitude of submission to the will of God, submission to his plan and his purpose, even if it's not what you want at the time. Those are just some, some thoughts, if it might help, um, in your own fasting. <clears throat> okay, so Jesus then gives us two parables. I call them parables. I think maybe the better term is illustrations. And um, these perhaps sit at the heart of Jesus' conflict with the scribes and Pharisees. Let's read them. It's just two more verses to study. Verse 21 says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch uh, pulls away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear is results. So the idea is you've got like uh, an old garment and it has a tear in it. And so you, you sew a, a new piece of cloth on it that's not shrunk yet. It's not pre-shrunk, right? And then you put it in the wash, you wash it, and it shrinks and it rips that garment even worse than before. So you just don't do that. That, that was just known to them. We don't know because we, I mean, most of us don't deal with patching. Actually, I do patch my jeans. Actually, my wife patches my jeans um, with fabric glue more information than anybody needed but <laughs> but we do use old cloth when we do it right we get an old pair of jeans and cut it up and use it to patch the, the current ones but then there's a second illustration verse 22 no one puts new wine into old wine skins otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well but one puts new wine into fresh wine skins what what am i to take of all this i i've got the unshrunk cloth versus the old garment old garment, new piece of cloth. I've got the old wine, old wineskins, new wine, new wineskins. And the main point seems to be across both of these illustrations. You don't mix the old with the new. That's the main point. That's the main thrust of this illustration. You don't mix the old with the new. Now you could stop there, but obviously Jesus is making a point about this. He's not just like, don't mix the old with the new into story. He's saying this in response to their question about fasting. So what is this about? I think it's it's either about Jewish tradition or it's about something a little bigger than that, like the Jewish law versus the new covenant that Christ was bringing. So let me explain. Some say in saying don't mix the old with the new, Jesus is just saying, I don't want to mix what I'm bringing with your traditions. So your Monday, Thursday fasting doesn't apply to the things that we're doing. Except Jesus didn't tell them they weren't going to fast anymore at all. He was just saying it's not going to happen right now. So Jesus doesn't seem to be against fasting. It's the timing of it that was wrong. It was something going on they didn't understand. Jesus was not just bringing another rabbi bringing good teaching. He was bringing new teaching. That's the idea. If Jesus is only talking about the traditions the Pharisees added to the law, and he's just thinking, because th this is what the, the, the Hebrew roots people, the Torah observant people would suggest. Jesus is not saying we're going to have something other than the law that Jesus is establishing. No, no, no. He's, he just wants to get rid of the pharisaical additions to the law. But the, the, the analogy doesn't work, though. 
Because Jesus isn't saying, preserve the old. End of story. It's not an analogy about how you don't take old wine and pour new wine into it. Just leave the old, man. End of strike. That would be the idea of keep the law pure and don't add your traditions. That would be if this illustration was about that. But he's like, no, no, here's the old, here's the new. They don't mix. Okay, so what is this about? I think it's about his new covenant. His new covenant. Because he's not just restoring the old. He's fulfilling it and bringing something new and different. And this is consistent with what Jesus taught. The new wine and the old wine. Uh, some people, we'll look at the symbols a little bit here. Uh, some people say the wine itself is symbolic of specific things. Um, like in Jesus' parables, oftentimes, like he talks about the sower sows the seed. The seed is the word and the, the birds of the air is the wicked one. You know, the, these are specific things, elements of the illustration that correspond to realities. So the old wine and the new wine, I've, I've heard a Calvary Chapel pastor, uh, who I respect, by the way, um, but he, he was saying that the wine is the Holy Spirit and the wineskins are us. And he's going to pour the Holy Spirit into us. We have to become new wineskins to be able to take the Holy Spirit. And the old wineskins, that was like the law poured into the traditions of Judaism or something like that. Um, and the statement here is that the Holy Spirit and wine are somehow connected in scripture. But the only verse people can come up with to support this idea is Ephesians where it says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here, however, the wine is not likened to the Holy Spirit. Wine is contrasted with the Holy Spirit. So I don't, I don't think that that connection is there. Um, but the main focus of the passage is new and old. And we know in Mark, the same book we're reading, where Jesus gives this parable or this illustration, Jesus, it says, brought new teaching. New teaching. We also read about how he brings a new covenant. So he's bringing something new and it's not to be mixed with the old. And that makes more sense in the context and the Pharisees are like, why aren't you doing everything the way we've done it? Also, wine in the Gospel of Mark, as well as other locations in the New Testament in particular, it represents the blood of the covenant. And so Mark 14, 24, Jesus says to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he's holding up to them wine. So wine might re represent the blood of the covenant or the new covenant versus the old covenant. And we have the blood of bulls and goats on one side and we have the new covenant Jesus brings on the other side. And he's like, I'm not coming to patch up the old covenant. I'm coming to bring a new covenant to do something brand new. This is consistent with Jeremiah 31 that says there was a new covenant coming and Jesus comes and establishes that. Hebrews 8.13, this is a challenging passage for those who think that all believers are supposed to obey the Old Testament law, which I don't think is biblical. Uh, Hebrews 8.13 says, when he said a new covenant... He made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So Hebrews is saying like that old covenant, it, it, it's been replaced. It's no longer necessary because Christ has, has fulfilled it. And now in Christ, I, this is, it's tricky. The theology, this is tricky. I, I call it fulfillment theology. The idea is in Jesus, I am fulfilling the old covenant through Christ, but not through this strict obedience to the law, but through my identification with Jesus who fulfills it. And then I walk under the law of Christ in obedience to Jesus Christ, the spirit of the law. And um, anyway, I just, there's, and there's a, a litany of scriptures to support all that kind of content. So this, I think, is a safe interpretation. And why do I think it's, a, why do I say it's a safe interpretation? That this new wine, the new garment, the new, is the new covenant Jesus is bringing. And it's not mixing with the old, whether it's the traditions or the law of Moses. It's not mixing. It's not some blending of the two. Rather, it's a fulfillment and a bringing of something new. 
I say it's a safe interpretation. Why? Because the theology of everything I'm saying is grounded in the didactic or teaching portions of the Bible. I'm not like going to the parable to get new theology. I'm rather reading the parable in the light of the clear teaching of the New Testament. Does that make sense? This is kind of important because it's dangerous when we try to go to parables or illustrations to invent new teachings that we're not finding elsewhere in the scripture. Because you can invent whatever you want. That's the nature of a parable is you can kind of adapt it to whatever you feel like is important to you. Let me give you some examples. Some people take the new wine and old wine skins and all this stuff to be basically new wine is whatever my church is doing and old wine is whatever that other church is doing. Right? New wine and old wine, man. New wine skins, man, that's us having drums. Old wine skins, no drums. Do you think that's what Jesus is talking about is drums? Like, is this what he's talking about in this passage? Or it could be my new version of revival. Right? Ooh, it's the 21st century and then this church we've got, oh, we're, everyone's excited and we're going and we're growing and we're doing and all this stuff's happening. This is the new wine. Do you think Jesus was talking about something that would be brought new all the time over and over again? New wine and then more new wine and then another batch of new wine 100 years later, 50 years later? Or was he talking about something he was doing uniquely in the first century when he brought the new covenant? See, I think this is a bad application. Um, another example of misusing parables is... Um, uh, from one pastor who's, he takes the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, and he uses it by itself to, to advance a new version of the gospel that he has, where Jesus doesn't die for your sins. He doesn't die for your sins. He doesn't pay for your sins. There's no sacrifice for sin. And he says, because in the prodigal son, there's no sacrifice for the sin of the son. He just is welcome back to the father. So therefore, there is no sacrifice. And to this I say, this is why you don't make up new theology out of parables. It's not the point of the parable to talk about how forgiveness is accomplished. It's to talk about God's loving willingness to graciously bring us back home. But it's not talking about how it was accomplished. And there was, a, there was a, an offer, not a sacrifice offering. There was a, a, a slain fatted calf that might still be embedded in the story just for that purpose of illustration. But we have clear teaching passages in the New Testament that tell us that that guy's gospel is wrong. And so we don't go to the, the um, parables to read my new theology into the Bible. I need to base my interpretation of parables in the clear teaching passages to make it safe. Not safe um, like it won't offend anybody or won't upset anybody, but rather safe as in the theology will be grounded in what God has revealed instead of grounded in my preferences. So the new cloth, the old cloth, um, it could be about, again, the, the old covenant. And the new covenant, it's not an addition. Jesus isn't bringing an addition to the old covenant. Rather, he's bringing something brand new. And it was predicted and prophesied and all that. The wineskins can refer to things like outward, things like fasting, and behaviors. Some people think that. Some people think the wineskins might refer to actual human lives. Um, that in order for me to be filled with, with this, this new experience in Christ, I have to become a new person. Well, that is consistent you know, any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. You must be born again. So that's like a safe interpretation. I don't know if it's accurate, but, but at least it's safe. You could conjecture that and you're within the grounds of good theology. But the clear point is this, and this is where we'll end. Jesus is the way. You don't take Jesus and add him to your own religious things. You come to Jesus and you let him be Lord of your life, Savior of your soul. You are lost in sin and you are found in him. That's it. He's not a supplement. I don't take my new age beliefs and slap Jesus onto them. I don't take Islam and slap Jesus onto that. 
And they, this is what people do. I don't take Buddhism and slap some Jesus on there. But this is what people do. They try to use Jesus like he's just going to be like, I'll just sow some of Jesus onto my old religious things. But instead, it's like, no, I need the pure grace of Christ because in and of myself, I could never accomplish the righteousness of God and he purchased it for me. Jesus alone, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And that means that I can't bring in my, my, my old religious stuff, whether it's, whether it's biblical or not, I can't bring that in as, as the ideas of how I'm going to get saved or how I'm going to grow in Christ or how I'm going to know God. I need the pure grace of Christ because I'm the sinner, I'm the tax collector, and so is the Pharisee. We're all in the same boat. We're all way down here. And Jesus comes up and says, hey, come follow me. Come follow me. This is going to be something new. Not man working his way to God, but God bringing man to God through the sacrifice of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would encourage us to share the gospel of Christ boldly, never adding the offense of our own uh, issues, our own sin nature, our own irritations, our own pride, but not being fearful to speak the truth of the beautiful invitation of Christ to sinners to be saved. We pray, Lord, for courage. We pray for courage for the church worldwide, that Christians everywhere would just be stirred up more and more and more to boldly and confidently and calmly share the truth of Christ, the invitation of the gospel, and that um, we wouldn't try to just add a little bit of Jesus to people's lives, but rather invite them to come for new birth in Christ and for salvation in the one who is alone purchased our salvation. We love you, Lord. We bless your name. And we thank you that by your mercy we come, though we, um, though we all sin and fall short of your glory by far, we, uh, we are invited to be your disciples and to know you. And we are grateful and we say amen. Do your will in our lives, Lord, and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.